Welcome to Status. I'm Manajay Nasrabadi. 2019 marks the 40th anniversary of the Iranian Revolution, and it has been filled with commemorations and critical engagements with the revolution and its aftermath. Often missing from the narrative of the Shah's overthrow and of the formation of an Islamic Republic is the eruption of a mass movement of Iranian women in March of 1979, who supported the revolution and demanded equality for women and men in the new society. In fact, the Iranian revolution involved the unprecedented politicization and mobilization of Iranian women from different economic classes with varying degrees of religiosity and with diverse ideological commitments. It brought into being multiple forms of feminism and women's organizing that have continued to shape Iranian society. We will be doing a conversation series with a number of Iranian feminists who participated in the 1979 revolution and have made important contributions to Iranian feminist politics ever since. The goal of this series is to gather and make accessible the memories, knowledge, and insights of this generation as a crucial part of Iranian and Iranian diasporic history. This series coincides with the launch of Jedaleya's new Iran page, an ongoing source of news, features, interviews, and reviews that we hope will bring alternative perspectives about Iran and the diaspora to the public. You can check it out at jedaleya.com. We begin our series today with Homa Hudfar, who has done extensive ethnographic work on women's movements in the Middle East and on Muslim women in diaspora. She is Professor Emeritus of Sociology and Anthropology at Concordia University in Montreal, Canada. Professor Hudfar is the author of at least 12 monographs and edited collections and a nearly countless number of book chapters and articles on women in Muslim countries and Muslim diasporas. Her scholarship offers comparative transnational approaches to topics including the history of the women's movement in Iran before and after the revolution, sexuality in Muslim contexts, the impact of neoliberalism on women and families in Egypt, and debates surrounding the veil in the Middle East and in North America. More recently, she has written and spoken about academic freedom following her 2016 arrest in Tehran on charges of, quote, dabbling in feminism and security matters, unquote. Feminism is not against the law in Iran, and she may have been the first person to be arrested on such charges. Released after seven months of grueling interrogations, Hudfar is deeply involved in a number of ongoing research projects that continue her life's work of thinking about women's rights, human rights, and the meaning of feminism across borders. Professor Hudfar, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I thought I would begin by asking you to talk about your experience of the Iranian Revolution more than 40 years ago. Where were you when the revolution began? And can you talk a little bit about those early years? Yeah, I, have, I was actually in Iran in 1978, and I participated in the poetry nights that in, in the eyes of many people of my generation was the beginning to feel that the regime is crumbling down, not necessarily seeing it as a revolution, but that the, that the public space is being open and people can express their views. So this was, um, I was there, but then that summer I left for my graduate school to England. I remember the night before I left, uh, having a bunch of student activists and friends around 
and we discussed very passionately um, the, the future of the regime. And at that time, I very, I thought at the time, many thought I, optimistically, I said, I give this regime three years max to survive or at least change totally in its nature in dealing with freedom of thoughts and speech. And I left the next morning, but it didn't take more than three months. In fact, the major student uh, demonstration started just for a month later and many things happened. And so, as you know, by 1979, the revolution had happened, Shah left, left. And so we were all, in some way, we were very excited, but we were also extremely hopeful because everything happened so fast and everyone was talking about freedom of thoughts, freedom, independence. But all along, because of my experience of especially having gone through a rather messy divorce, even under the family protection law, I was very concerned what this means for women. I was concerned when women, as, uh, I saw images of BBC showing always this women in black to door. But then I had friends who wrote all the time. I mean, that was an arrangement. Every single day, I would have one friend to write what happens in the demonstrations. So I had all of these letters, which were accumulated, some were 10 pages long. And so they said they were how there was uh, clashes between them and others because they wanted to se segregate the line between women and men. It wasn't initially very demanding to put uh, to wear the hijab in during this demonstration. So people were, were very mixed initially. But as the regime says, these are the communists and the, this propaganda that the, the, these are communists and all they want is to share the women and, and so ruin the family. <laughs> so the, the story, not just in Iran, apparently this was, then I learned this was through the whole Middle East, we have these stories. And so women started to wear chador to symbolically, or wear a scarf to symbolically denounce that, you know, what regime is saying that they are communists is not true. I know that a Jewish friend of mine, who later had to leave Iran, wore the black chador to go to the demonstration. And no one in, in her family ever had wore any, any coverage. But as a part of this to communicate symbolically that they are you know, Iranian, there's nothing to do with uh, foreign forces as the regime would demand. So this, this, gave, uh, this had given uh, advantage actually to the uh, more radical Islamist forces. Mm -hmm. And during the as demonstration so, um, proceeded, apparently a lot of the left uh, wing students asked women to yes, to wear the chador, yes, to uh, agree with segregation of the rows. So from that time, I was very concerned and very worried because I thought this would, this can be an indication of what is to come if the Islamists, the, the, the Muslim movement take over, uh, over the demonstrations that is, seems to be a national um, demonstration. There are people of all sorts of beliefs, mm -hmm. including, as I said, my Jewish friend in the demonstration. So suddenly it takes an Islamic face, which was in some way, yes, to tell the, the Shah it was not a communist 
I mean, the Russians and the Chinese and all this had nothing to do with it. On the other hand, it meant that large segment of Iranian population lost control the, over the demonstrations and their demand. So it seems like from what you're saying that women were under a kind of particular burden to prove that they were authentically Iranian, not influenced by outside sources, to kind of become themselves somehow symbols of the authenticity of the revolution. Well, it's interesting to frame it that way, because in some way, part of our criticism of the regime was that they wanted this European model wholeheartedly, and people were interested in their culture. To tell you the story was that I had been in Europe from 1979 to 1975 when my parents left me, agreed to my departure, partly because of my opposition to the 2500 celebration of monarchy in Iran. But In 1971? In 1971, I left. That summer I left, just before the celebration. But then... When I went back just three years later, just for the summer, what I noticed that suddenly all of my friends who before used to listen to the Western music or to be European or appearing to be European was part of the status. Now they are reading Rumi and Hafez. Yes, you go to the dance floor, but you dance with Iranian music. So I very quickly realized things are changing just even in the course of two and a half years that I was away. And I knew some of my friends who used to go to my father once a week to read, not just to read Rumi and Hafez, but to read it in that traditional way of singing it, which he knew. So it was this cultural shift that had already taken place prior to the, to the demonstration. And so I was aware of a lot of the shifts, and I was aware that secular forces have become, are not just following the West, but they are very uh, interested in their own culture without necessarily, not that they were not critical of it, but they wanted to pick up the best of both worlds. Mm -hmm. But then the demonstration and going back to covering women and forcing women to actually symbolically communicate that they are not influenced by the by the Russians or the Chinese, which were the, the foreign forces that the regime was referring to, in in a way also started the beginning of this gender apartheid society. That's very interesting that that in the opposition to the Shah, women had to prove they weren't influenced by communist countries, and then very quickly after the Shah was overthrown, women had to I guess begin to prove or had to try to prove that they weren't westernized, right, or influenced by a different set of foreign uh, influences from the West. Can you, can you talk a little bit about the immediate aftermath of the revolution and kind of the situation that led to the mass mobilization on March 8th of 1979, International Women's Day? Yes, well, this immediately within two weeks of the Khomeini coming to power, he had canceled the family law protection, he, can, he segregated the sport facility. Basically, all the things women had fought for 75 years to gain during the 20th century, it was all canceled as a Western and going back to our culture. But one of the, I clearly remember at some stage, we were having a discussion with some of my leftist friends in Manchester, and they were saying, well, we have to go back to our own 
scientific culture and it's, it's fine, we are anti-imperialist. So they, it was going on and on and on. And I said, let's see, you're not going back to a culture. I don't see you wearing a different clothes or not smoking Winston cigarette uh, and all of this. Why should women go? And if being anti-imperialism means the little, the little rights, the meager rights we had secured under this modernist regime, and then we give that up as well, then we were, we were imperialism. And at that point, I, I thought my friends are almost ready to hit me, but I hadn't heard this expression at the time of Emma Goldman that if I can't dance in a revolution, I don't want it. I wish every time I see that, I wish I knew it because I remember that, that very day, these friends who usually had, would meet with us, we had discussion, and we had a large meeting at Manchester because, of course, the, the Iranian Confederation was very organized outside. But they thought I was totally mad because I, I don't understand that women have to give in in their fight against imperialism. Well, I wanted to say, well, are, what do you know of imperialism? I don't want a revolution that takes away what the right I had and take me back. Even my grandparents, grandmother had more rights in some way than, than we had today, and asked me to be silent about it. So in some way, the left continuously silenced the women's movement in that way. But what happened in Iran was Khomeini had announced the compulsory hijab, which is actually what a lot of older secular people like my, my father, my, uh, my other relatives had warned us this is going to be the beginning of the end for women's freedom. Mm. But we didn't believe them. And so Khomeini comes and says the compulsory hijab on the 7th of March. Usually 8th of March, okay, a few of us leftists and feminists would be, would be conscious, but 8th of March will go unmarked in Iran. But suddenly this was a demonstration that had, had took place. People came just by word of mouth. This is before the internet, before even photocopy time. <laughs> People had to phone and just announce, and it was a huge demonstration. And what is interesting, if you see the footages that was taken place, uh, that, that had now is, is emerging, and there are women with chador, there are women, all sorts of women that came out in, in actually opposing this compulsoriness of the hijab. And to the credit of some of the uh, Muslim, practicing Muslim women, like uh, Talagani, Zahra Rahnabad and Fatima Hashemi, not the daughter of Hashemi, but there was another woman who wrote an open letter to say, don't, don't include just Islam with the, the hijab. There's, the revolution was about a lot, of, a lot more things. But of course, at that time, these hints and letters and all this fell to the death. Yes, yes women won and, and the compulsoriness was taken back, say no, it's volunteer. And, but then little by little, within two years, it was reimposed. Mm -hmm. But because it was not graduate, it was harder to organize a complete demonstration. At first they said, if you're if you a government employee, you have to wear it. And a lot of women wore it because, not because they agreed, because they said they wanted to push us out of the job. Because that's one of the other things. Women should be just in domestic life. And maybe they can be teachers, but not anything else initially. So women agreed to wear the, um, the scarf and the chador because they thought 
the bigger fight is to to have the right to work. Mm -hmm. But then gradually, then if you needed to go as a client to any government, and then if you needed to go to university, anyway, within two years, it became compulsory for everyone. And so by the time you came back to Iran in 1981, what were the conversations like among leftists, among um, women activists? You know, how were people feeling and assessing and talking about the revolution, the, the gender politics of the revolution versus in the earlier period? It's interesting because they were, by then you could, you have all these different group of people. The leftists, which is like Fadoyon and all sorts of different people with socialist and Marxist tendencies, tended to think, oh, these are just religiously, they don't know how to run the state, they're going to be overthrown, and they basically thought they can deceive these mullahs because they didn't understand the way system worked. Because under the Shah, opposition was like just talking about freedom of thoughts and all this, but we weren't free to read, to have open discussion, for people to become politically very aware of the situation, the realities of how to run the state. So these were young people. And then there were secular Democrats. Mm -hmm. uh, some of, when I say secular, people think people who were not religious. In fact, in my own family, we had very observant, observant um, Muslim who were secular, com mm -hmm. completely committed secular. In fact, many of them thought the only way to protect religion is to go through the secularist road. Now, somehow the Islamist and the Iranian regime has managed to change this, that if you're secular, means you're anti-religion, rather than the separation of the state from religion. It is to their win, and it's also us not knowing our society and, and lack of our awareness what it meant to be secular mm -hmm. under the previous regime. Mm -hmm. I mean, one can criticize them for, very, for very many things, but in fact, this freedom existed, at, at least under the Muhammad Reza Shah. So it, in, some, in some way, these all fed into the hand of the regime and the most reactionary wing of the regime. So that, at that time, people talk about the secularists were much more realistic about the danger, both about the West trying to interfere, but also about how this regime is using our fear of imperialism to... Uh, impose their own regressive views of society and culture. And of course, at that time, the war started, right? The war, Iran-Iraq war had started, which was the biggest gift the regime could, the, the West could give to the regime, because then when you have a war with enemy within the Iranian society, when all of their, during under Pahlavi's regime, they have been always said, we need the military, because Iraq and other countries may attack us. Mm -hmm. And in fact, that happened. So suddenly, all of the things we, we criticized for 50 years on the previous regime became a reality. And so, of course, then people, the reality at that time was we have to fight, fight the enemy, external enemy. So that gave the chance to the regime to arrest, imprison, execute, and all of these things happened during the eight-year war. Of course, they didn't want to end the war because it was so much to their advantage. It seems like this is one of so many cases where revolutions are followed very quickly by, by war and that the conditions of war kind of work to destroy the democratic potential of revolutions um, in case after case. So by the end of the war, then, 
where were conditions for women at? I mean, it's it's interesting because the conversation at the time, as you're saying, among some secularists, was this concern that things were going to go backwards, that women were going to be driven out of the workforce, back into the home. And of course, we know that that didn't happen. And that in some ways, Iranian women were able to participate in public life and in the workplace and in society in unprecedented numbers and in in new ways, despite the gender inequality that was enshrined in the law. So can you talk some about that, kind of those developments and those contradictions? Because it's it's uh, so often misunderstood, as you as your work um, has been pointing out for so long, you know how we assess the conditions of Iranian women in the aftermath of revolution is not a kind of straight line or a simple narrative of either going forward or going backwards. Part of the problem with much that is written is that we always look at the state as a major major player. I know what happened immediately after. They excluded, they wanted to exclude women from university. They wanted to change to change the curriculum of school. And in fact, one way I when I went back to Iran in 1981, the first thing I noticed was the, the school books from the grade one to grade three already had changed. All the pictures were Islamic, issues were different. Women were at home and mother and the father was the breadwinner. And I, I kept telling my leftist friend, you're taught to naive, this regime is here to stay. And they thought, oh, I live abroad, I don't understand. And you know, like, I said, look, you don't see, but because I wasn't here, I can see how these changes gradually have happened. But to the credit of the secular women's movement, what they started, as soon as the education issue became a matter, they really did a big campaign over the education and over the, the cancellation of family law, because these two would impact almost a lot of women. So they said, yes, this regime is going to stop women from having education and all these things, which even very religious people didn't want that to happen. So in a way, regime had to go out of its way to provide more education and a larger and put a lot of funding into education, especially among the lower income group, to show that, in fact, they're not against educating women. They just don't want women to be Western. So. If it wasn't that push for the for, from the secular side, and women were very active about that and the family law, they forced the regime to basically move a little bit to the to the right for women aspect. And say on the other hand, also all of these people they had sent their husbands um, to the to the front. They were killed, and suddenly they realized. According to Islamic law, their kids are taken away, given to their to the parents, to their grandparents, and they are left with no husband, no child, no protection. So they organized because the war was going on. They had to say, if you if you read Santa Cruz, which is the major women's magazine of, that was taken over by by the, um, the by the women that supported the regime, these letters, the heart letters was there and people mobilized around that so Khomeini had to give in to say no women can keep their children although the movement had wanted to give this right to all women but the regime just gave it to the right of the women whose husbands were martyrs but nonetheless it says that all of these Islamic laws were not written on stone and this also 
basically mobilized a lot of women who had accepted Islam on uh, on the assumption they had rather than on a legal uh, face. So it mobilized them. So it became a lot of conversation between secular women who would criticize Islam and then the, the Muslim women who were uh, really believed in justice within Islam, then they would try to find ways and questions to answer and that at the same time force the regime to move and give more rights to women. So this kind of the regime always, while it was taking, took away a lot of these rights from women, at the same, same time, politicized a lot of women who wouldn't have been politicized normally. They would live their lives like a cultural, culturally they were Muslim and they usually couldn't afford to go to the court anyway. So what legal right they had wouldn't really touch upon their lives. And then on the other hand, Women, men were in the front, so a lot of women, also young women, volunteered to be behind there, to give service, to provide this. This also brought women into the public life. So ironically, while regime was taking a lot of the rights from women and wanted to push them back into the private room of the household and be mother and, and wives, the situation brought a lot of women who traditionally and culturally would not have been really have playing a major role in public space and politics back into the politics. So things were not, didn't quite go in the way that the regime wanted, but also brought consciousness to a lot of women who then questioned a lot of their assumption. What does is, what is Islamic justice mean for women? Mm-hmm. How do I defend? I mean, women, when I was doing field work in, in, even in the 90s, women would just say, I'm defending my Islamic rights. I mean, this is not the way, I mean, as an Iranian, this is not the way even secular women discussed, <laughs> presented what they they wanted in the question of rights, became part of the public discussion. I mean, a lot of women that I was talking to, they were, they barely had high school diploma, many of them, some were barely could read and write, but they would talk about, they are defending their Islamic rights. So in some way, the regime had also a problem on its hands. But yet, it had politicized, but within the Islamic framework. So it wasn't it wasn't just a simple question. But now they had opposition to secular women, the women that work from within the Islamist framework, and then now, of course they had the conventional Muslim women who supported them. But even those who supported them, they would ask questions. So it wasn't so straightforward for the regime. It sounds like these contradictions really kind of generated or, or created the conditions of possibility for like a new Muslim feminism to emerge in the aftermath of the revolution. Would you agree with that? Or Well, I wouldn't actually call it Muslim feminism. I've always had a bit of a problem with that term. <laughs> because when we talk about feminism emerging in the West, we don't call it Christian feminism, but they did criticize church. They criticized. They wanted to have the right to divorce and all these things. Why is it when we as Muslim women try to question these things, suddenly we become Muslim feminists? Feminism is feminism. Feminism to me is uh, women who recognize that women are discriminated against and they take steps, whether this is in writing, whether in, in other action, whether it's just talking to the neighbors. They do something about this. They question it. So whether I question the mullahs in the mosque or the, the religious leaders 
or whether I asked them questions, which is what Zaneruz did, actually, in fact. They brought a lot of these religious leaders uh, and asked questions that women ask. And they asked them, how do you answer this question? We tell them Islam is just and justice. So these are the questions. Why is it a man can divorce a wife after 40 years and give, give her nothing? And why is it the children have to go to grandparents whom they haven't seen? Why would a man who anyway doesn't have time to take the children should take the children um, necessarily and the mother who can take care of them cannot have it? So the religious leaders never had to answer to women. They never had women going to negotiate with them and discuss with them. Now they had to come up with a question, answer. And for the first time, they actually took women's issues more seriously. So you get people who are become more progressive about women participating in politics, women, women in the right to divorce, about reforming. So you get a whole lot of women created a whole lot of religious leader who became much more progressive in their views on gender than they would otherwise be. It wasn't like they suddenly became intellectual. Women forced them to look at their situation. So I give the credit to the women's movement, however you define the movement. Can we speak of something called Iranian feminism? In other words, but people do talk about Western feminism. Is there an Iranian feminism that maybe isn't just one thing, but that somehow emerges from the particular specific experience that Iranians have been through, you know, going through westernized modernization under the dictatorship of the Shah, going through a revolution that was contested in many ways, going through the, the kind of very interesting uh, pushback within an Islamic framework that women have been waging for many decades now. Is there something about the experience that women have lived through these last, you know, Whoa. many, many decades of our, our contemporary moment that that we might describe or pull together in some way and call Iranian feminism. We can call Iranian forms of resistance, but Iranian feminism is feminism. If you live in Iran, obviously the strategies you take is different than if you live in the middle of London or if you, New York or if you live in Pakistan for that matter. So your strategy as a feminist is to do, you have to assess your, your context. In the Iranian context, we have, of course, um, we have a very col colorful changing of the strategies all the time. As the regime becomes more forceful and tries to impose more regulation, women have resisted. Like whether it is wearing, wearing your colorful scarf, whether you resist wearing the regime wanted to uh, women wear. Like the first time I went to uh, Iran, went to buy a, a, a push overall that women wear. Everyone had to wear black, and I saw they are green and, and colorful there. Women actually had done research, and when the Revolutionary Guard would say, this is not the color you should wear, they say, pink is the favorite color of the regime. How can you say, God created the sky, blue sky, so beautiful that we shouldn't take that? I mean, all of these things were strategies to, is a way of dialogue with the regime. You don't have to have words all the time. But women became very, very active in the way they, and daily resistance was, I mean, I have so many stories from my research, which we don't have time to share, but like whether it's about painting your nail or whether it is about uh, the style 
that you choose and the color you wear. So I think it, those are strategies. And then, of course, now we have internet, we have other forms. The reason 40 years later, the regime is still every time has to adopt a new strategy to force this imposing compulsory wear, which they have made it as a banner of their identity, unfortunately for them. So it's easy for the public to question this banner of identity. Now, the last thing I heard is that we have all these cameras in the street that usually was put in so that cars that speed, they can take the picture like we have here. No, but they do take picture of women who drive without wearing the scarf. So then they send a fine to the, the, the owner of the car because women were where their scarf was fallen on their shoulders and all of that. But this, this really shows how desperate this regime is. This doesn't show that women have put up with things. 40 years later, they have... They, they announced they have a million or so of volunteers in, on the streets of big cities to impose the hijab, and they still have to have this, and they still have, have to give heavy fine to women. The last thing I read was a woman who walked in the street without a veil. They, she was arrested. She was given 24 years of imprisonment for not wearing the hijab. 24 years. Then you have Nasser Institute who has given 30 years of imprisonment for defending other women who is a, she as a lawyer is a, she has the right to defend people. That shows this regime is completely ideologically defeated. Even if the oil money can keep them and even repression has managed to keep the regime. But in terms of a regime has to live at least in the heart and mind of substantial sector of the society. But this shows that this regime knows that it's not popular and the only way that they can keep, keep being power is by intimidating the public. And of course, the major, a major public is the women because resistance to women has, resistance of women to the regime is daily, is hourly, is everything in what you wear, whether you wear lipstick or not, whether you walk in the street hand in hand, whether you chant to a friend, whether you hold the hand of your boyfriend, every everything women do is politicized. I was talking to a young woman of 22 and said, I said, do you, are you interested in politics? Because I was working on women and politics. This is some, some years back. And she says, I hate politics. And then the next step, she says, but I'm, I'm was wearing this and the regime was, the guards were after me and all this. I said, but you said you hate politics. It's not my fault. I don't want to see this as politics. If they make my lipstick, my skirt, who I talk to, who I kiss, politicize, politicize it's them. They are imposing this on us. Otherwise, I just want to go and live my own life. To me, this kind of response shows that women are very conscious that this regime has trespassed so much into their private life that in fact they cannot stop being politicized they have no option they've left them no option so do you think that these daily acts of resistance kind of produce a feminist consciousness broadly conceived i actually i'm very hopeful and i think yes when i was in iran actually this was one of the things they used against me i always go on the metro metros is especially the women's compartment is where women talk Really, that's not the case in the male compartment because I sometimes also would go there. But 
they are very conscious of what they say and how it's going to be understood. But the women have none of those. Firstly, it is very informal, and people sell everything from from socks and bras and uh, household goods and food and plastic in and phone, <laughs> everything you can think. But also, there's a lot of discussion how women talk to each other, even even um, really uh, talk about the time of the Shah and what has happened and the improvement and how they use women all the time to their own advantage. They want to use it to their own advantage. You know, to me, I would sit quietly because sometimes the language has also changed. Even our intonation, when we go to our intonation is different. People realize you don't, you don't live there. So I would sit quietly and just listen to this conversation, especially last time it was during the election. People just talk so freely and it was always Oh, they're using women. They they are taking the rights, and they, all they think, like all the regime thinks, is having more wives and more houses for themselves, and their kids are um, driving Ferrari and go to U.S. Uh, have a good time, and they tell us to go to the street and shot death to America. <laughs> and this were conversation in the public space. And to me, and also especially all the things how women women's right and um, both in the family and the public has been had the trample uh, on by this regime. And so to me, yeah, this regime, because of the kind of restriction they imposed on women, have brought the consciousness that is what a feminist movement usually works to bring consciousness to the public. Now, in this case, the consciousness is there. Yes, the, um, in traditionally, women have feminist movement has focused on changing the structural uh, limitation, like changing the law, changing the systemic discrimination. But in the context of Iran, because you cannot mobilize, because repression is so high, um, that in fact, I think a Stalin comes a better, <laughs> some better, I mean, the restriction is so bad that like a colleague that was discussing me discussing history said that this Stalin didn't have internet and couldn't control the phone. <laughs> so under this situation, women can't organize, maybe they, well, they organize through social media. They're always a step ahead of the regime because that's why they changed their strategy. But you change the cultural side, the ideological side, the gender vision, the gender consciousness has changed through uh, society. Of course, this is not what is happening there. You know, even here uh, in my human rights course that I teach, I used to teach, I don't teach anymore, but but we have a topic on women's rights are human rights. Mm -hmm. And my students get so annoyed that it's such a stupid topic, right? Of course, women's rights are human rights. But of course, for me, is that women's rights are human rights is only 25 years old. So I have to explain to them that, of course, their their reaction for me is, tells to me about my success, me and my generation of feminists who mobilize around the issue, that they, they have so internalized this mm -hmm. that they can't imagine that 25 years ago, this was not the case. Mm -hmm. 25 years ago, when we tried to get Amnesty International to actually come up and all the women who were not just in Iran, but in other parts of the world, but especially in Algeria and Sudan were in jail to issue a letter of support for them, they consider that, that they're not political gender activists, they're not political activists. Mm -hmm. So we had to go and establish another organization 
that's how actually women living under Muslim laws with, uh, was set up as an organization so that firstly, we support the women with their, uh, that have been the state in the hand of state and non-state actors have been uh, suffering, but also to do research for action. So these are the way Women Living Under Muslim Law Networks was one of the first ones set up, but then a similar thing happened in other parts of the Muslim world because because uh, women who were activists, the feminists who were arrested, put in jail, they wouldn't actually have any international support. So we had to generate the system. Of course, I was happy that Amnesty International finally, when I was in jail, actually, they went out whole, wholeheartedly to support me. But I mean, at the time of like 35 years ago, when we wanted them to, to support the Iranian who were arrested, the Algerian and all of that, they just didn't, they, it wasn't part of their mandate because they weren't political activists. Whereas now we can understand, for example, the woman you mentioned who was given 24 years or 25 years in prison for taking off her headscarf, we can understand her as a political prisoner. Of course, it's, it's nice. And what was really annoying that at that time, because South Africa was very much part of the major movement the South Africans who were working against apartheid were considered politicized, but the women were not. But it's also, it was there also, the atmosphere. I mean, we saw things are not just happening in Iran because of revolution. Um, the Pakistanis introduced the Hudud laws. The Algerian non-state actors also were attacking women and they were abducting women and, and because they refused to wear the veil. And the same thing was happening in Sudan, it's happening a little bit in Egypt. So all of these things we realized this is this is not something that is happening is because of revolution. This is much this is a global movement with the, the rise of Islamic fundamentalists. And also at the time we have to remember because Reagan had decided to support the Islamists, so all of these Islamists today, we call them terrorists. They were called freedom fighters. Mm -hmm. So no newspaper, no radio station would ever refer to, to Algerian terrorists who would abduct and rape women and basically hold them as a sexual slave. We never refer to this as how the rights of these women have been used because you couldn't, they said, even, even I remember even the Guardian reporter told us we can't talk about these things because we can't really attack the freedom fighters. Wow. We can't give them, we can't expose them in this way. But I said they raped the whole school in Afghanistan. The, the, the girls who are like nine years old, they look what Algerian and uh, terrorists are doing to, to the Algerian women. Look what is happening in Sudan. But it really would fall in their fears because they weren't seen as politically important. So with the transnational women's movement, we had to create the situation that this discrimination and, and treatment of women in this way would be taken seriously. And then because of, in, in the aftermath of 9-11 in the context of the war on terror, the script, the kind of Western media and political script really flips, right? And then it's this, very monolithic, relentless representation of Islamic terrorism 
as the singular enemy, the enemy of women, the enemy of the West, the, you know, and to justify, right, this ongoing and expansive, you know, mi militarism. So how do you situate yourself in that kind of very messy, <laughs> you know, it's like, it's like you're sort of like either way you turn, right? There's, there's, um, there's a, a whole set of problems. So, so how do you, you know, as someone who is, who is diasporic, who is based in the West, how do you negotiate that very difficult terrain of trying to make space to talk about the real oppression of women that is going on, right? Often in the name of Islam, and then the the kind of systematic uh, oppression of women that goes on in the name of fighting against Islam, quote unquote, you know, from a Western perspective. Yes, well, this is actually for at least women of my generation, it's very frustrating to see this complete flip flop, which in neither case the interests of women are taken in heart. I, as someone who who is not just living in the West, but I am in contact with women at least in the Middle East, if not the broader Muslim context, mm -hmm. is put in a situation. Women in, in the Muslim context are very annoyed at the situation in the West because the Western liberal leftists, again, just like right, exactly like after the Iranian revolution, tell them to be silent and not to talk to the, the press in, in the West about stoning or about what happens to women and you know, to get 24 years of of imprisonment because you you didn't want to wear your scarf and so this situation they say well first we were colonized and now these anti-colonial supposedly progressive way they don't want they don't yes it's islamophobia and all of these things now they tell us again to be silenced because we don't want the regime uses these voices against what they consider muslim they say well do your homework do find the ground that you can talk about Islamophobia without silencing, wanting to silence us because your job, because you're liberal and you want your job to be freer, you, you think you're being being supportive of us. In fact, you are, you are, is a new form of colonial power. Because what we have within, say, the context of Iran or context of many of the Middle East, and it's, it's our access to the West because our government are not giving us a platform. They are not allowing us to mobilize, to raise power. But if we can reach out and tell them what is happening here, they are, because they care more about what outsiders think about them than what we as citizens think, it gives us the power. You just want to pull that the, the, the thin rug we have under our feet from us and tell us to be silent because the Islamophobia is there. After all, it's not women who are doing things. If it, it should be the regime like Iran, like the ex-Sudan regime, and all of these other regimes that support the, the Islamic Saudi Arabian regime that have been have to be silenced because they they are abusing rights. So this is very, of course, it's very difficult for the situation. But I do see, I mean, I sympathize with a lot of activists within the Middle East that they don't want to be silenced again. This works against your, they say, do your homework. Mm -hmm. Don't want to keep the banner of being liberal and progressive under our back again, right? So I'm put in this way of having to talk to my liberal leftist friend here in the, in, in the context of North America, and then to my feminist friend with, that live 
live those realities in the in the Middle East. So this is not an easy situation. But my sympathy is goes more with obviously the feminist activists in the Middle East because I am much more aware of what daily they go through than say and of course it some way it breaks my heart in some way when I see some liberal feminist women in the West who work in the in the Middle East as well talk about um, these issues and ask women not to say or if when they criticize women who have, have come up and talk about the stoning why are you criticizing the women criticize the state <laughs> and they say well you give a bad like it was like when I was arrested they say you're writing you're giving a bad name to Islam I said I give a bad name to Islam or you do it's not me who stones the women it's not me who uh, uh, who lashes women because they uh, they sat with their fiancés is is you are doing and keep saying you keep saying you and CIA give the bad name to Islam so me and CIA can do nothing in comparison with what you have done to give a bad name to to Islam and the Iranian revolution so it was all it's always those who are doing all, all these all these roles that is against women then then at the same time they they want to blame women, blame women for it. You can't blame people who are oppressed to fight their oppression. Mm-hmm. This is their right based on any law that you can imagine, whether it's Islamic law, whether it's Muslim law, whether it's constitution, whether it is even, even UN recognizes liberation war as a mm-hmm. legitimate war. Mm-hmm. So if you fight to liberate yourself from from these, these situations, you... you you can't, you can't be blamed, and so in some way, I'm, I feel sometimes stuck between, between these two camps. But I also think the responsibility relies on us in the West to find a way to fight Islamophobia, but not silence people. But at the same time, you know, like this regime when the terrorists became freedom fighters, when it was to the benefit of the West, when they turned their gun against the, the West, then they became terrorists. So it seems to be what we say is not such a big deal in this way. We don't play a role, but at least let's not silence the women mm-hmm. who, who are fighting their oppression on a daily, hourly basis. This is what a whole leftist, out of all the forces, the leftist and the Islamist uh, wanted to discredit uh, feminism, they call it friends. We don't call Marxism, Western Marxism. It's, it's born in the <laughs> And this was one of the issues. I mean, when I was arrested, I mean, they kept saying, you Western, I, I gave you examples of the Qajar women, and I gave example of how, in fact, before uh, Lebanese women, and uh, uh, so they, they were, I had, uh, I had 45 sessions of interrogation, mm-hmm. some of which went, eight to nine hours, you know, from seven, eight in the morning. But I, at some stage, because I had turned this into a discussion, and as much as I, I mean, I was obviously annoyed at all the things that was happening to me, but I also felt these interrogators, which were nine of them in total, but two were the main, two, three of them were the main people who came. They actually wanted to have this discussion. They find it because 
they were telling like they would say, are you a feminist? And I said, yes, but what do you mean by feminist? They couldn't d- define what they mean by feminist. They just knew it's bad, mm-hmm. right? And when I would give them an example, they, they wanted to to know where. I mean, I was always worried that they want to know so that they can, next time when they arrest another woman, <laughs> to use it against them. But at the same time, I thought, you know, this is my oh, my main chance. Unfortunately, it's the only channel I can talk to the state. So I I would give them all these lectures, free lectures <laughs> under under duress. They got a women's studies yeah. education. They got intro to women's studies from. <laughs> yeah, that's what, that's what when I talk to my colleague, that's what we discuss. How many free lectures they got out of me? Hours and hours of free lectures. But I think you're right. I mean, Western feminism is such a, it's a straw man. It's, you know, it's easy to yeah, knock but down. Can it's easy to criticize. in the West. Yeah. We don't talk about Western democracies. Right. We don't talk about, uh, also the same, we don't, when we talk about Islam, we don't say um, this Arabic Islam. Right, right. <laughs> and of course, West, if we really were going to talk about feminisms in the West, we would have to think about like black feminism, uh, third world feminism, these radical women of color, anti-imperialist feminisms. But of course, that's not what anybody that's means when they say, right. And so there's a kind of whitening, you know, an assumption that Western feminism is the feminism of white middle-class liberal women. Right. And that's a huge yeah. distortion and a kind of erasure. Um, I doubt even a lot of people who say that, they even know to that detail of white liberal women like that. They just... You know, they think feminism is going to take their rights, a right that belongs to them, uh, rather than think, well, in fact, one of the interesting things during the early feminism in Iran and Qajar areas is that how uh, women wanted a lot of men to be feminists. Because they wanted, and their first, the first association that we have, the Constitution of it, actually included equal number of men and women, mm-hmm. even though it was, they clearly, they called themselves Banu Iyan. Banu, if you know, Farsi, right? Banu means a woman. Yeah. But Banu Iyan is exact translation of feminism. It is uh-huh. unfortunate that we in Iran have not picked up this that has been, people wrote, and Shahnaz uh, Azad wrote about this, in details, and we use the Western translation of it, right? But, but they translated, yeah. they have Banu Iyan. Right? So I would, I gave all these lectures and they <laughs> didn't know what to do with me. And, and I think, you know, your point that feminism is feminism, it's not bound to a particular race or ethnicity or national context or history, that it's, you know, a, a available to be reinterpreted and filtered through the specificity of women's experiences anywhere, right, at any time. It's like saying racism and anti-racist movement, whether you are or whether you are in Iran or whether you are in U.S., is anti-racism. But what the kind of activity you do around it is defined by the context you are in. So I, I very much feel that should be the framework to which we look at a lot of these resistance movements. Professor Hidfar, thank you so much for joining us today.
You've been listening to Status Audio Magazine. The Status is produced by the Arab Studies Institute in partnership with Voices of the Middle East and North Africa, co-sponsored by George Mason University's Middle Eastern Studies Program and the American University of Beirut's Asfari Institute for Civil Society and Citizenship. Interested in pitching an interview, a program episode, or becoming a partner, email our associate producer, Paola Messina, at paola at statushour.com. To listen to more conversations, on-the-scene reports, and discussions, visit our website, statushour.com, or subscribe via iTunes and listen to us on the go. You can also friend us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter. Thanks for listening, and for more conversations, please visit statushour.com. Thank you.